Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Deron Wallace about the culture trap, ethnic expectations, and unequal schooling for black youth. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. Uh, this is an absolutely fantastic book. Uh, and I think in the best tradition of sociology, it takes a, a really, I think, um, insightful starting point that um, we have seemingly kind of um, two completely different educational contexts, um, but actually, you know, some some real issues around kind of race and inequality to be grappled with, and then tells this really fascinating, both ethnographic, but also, uh, I think, sociological story about how we explain what's going on with race and education, really in, in the two countries, in the UK and the US. And I guess the starting point really is what kind of inspired you to write the book and what inspired you to to do the research. There's a, a beautiful kind of opening where you're talking to uh, one of the teachers that's involved in the book. And, and, and it really kind of brings to life the sense of what's what's going on with the text. So yeah, could, could you sort of introduce the research for me? Sure. Thank you so much for that question, Dave. Um, I had a chance encounter with um, uh, a, a black teacher I've been working with for about a year, uh, Miss Bell, um, a firebrand veteran black teacher in a primary school in South London, um, met me at the gate. Um, and as we were walking up the stairs, you know, she would usually remind me um, that I was young, right, that she's been teaching in her words for as long as I've been alive. and. She asked me, um, this was um, early in the week, but she asked me what I'd been doing over the weekend. And I told her, um, I responded to her. She asked, you know, about the other things I did besides community organizing, because that was what I was doing before I even conceived of this ethnographic study. Um, and when I told her that, among many, many other things that I studied at the University of Cambridge, she was shocked. And she spun around almost, you know, very quickly and stared at me quizzically. Um, and her response was, and you're Caribbean? And I thought to myself, well, why would you be surprised that as a Caribbean person, I'd be studying at the University of Cambridge in the U.S., where I'd just come from a year before? Um, the perception was that if you were Caribbean, you were high achieving. So I thought to myself, well, she, I, I shared that with her. And she said, well, no, her exact words were, words were, not in England, my friend. And I, to be very honest with you, Dave, I could not... I could not shake the restless provocation her comments provoked. It raised so many questions for me about why it was the case. And I leafed through all sorts of books in sociology, anthropology, history, black studies, even economics, just to see if I could find some sort of um, explanation that could um, assuage my concerns. And I, I couldn't find anything. Um, I started talking to members of the community, um, even relatives, to see if they could give me an answer. Um, and that's when I realized that there was this longstanding sedimented narrative in the UK context of, of Caribbean kids being underachieving. Now, I had seen um, some teachers mobilize this understanding or this perception in the context of schools, but frankly, I'd relegated that to a specific set of students in a specific school. I didn't realize, um, pardon me for saying, but I didn't realize this was a national trend. What Miss Mel did for me was she ushered my mind on a previously unfamiliar corridor and really sensitized me to the importance of thinking both within and beyond the nation. How could it be that in both the US and the UK context, it's purported that there's something intrinsic to Caribbean culture that produces the outcomes or the perceptions of them as being high achieving in the US and underachieving in the UK, when across these two national contexts, we experience different results? It, it, it isn't or it couldn't just be Caribbean culture. Now, I must confess that at the beginning, I was very, very dismissive that culture could have anything to do with this at all. 
And what I had to come, what I came to learn in the context of this book was that culture matters tremendously, but culture alone does not shape the outcomes of, of, of Black Caribbean young people in London and New York or in any particular national context. I wouldn't have come to this study. I wouldn't have come to this awareness were it not for this um, the five foot one firebrand Black teacher in South London who posed that question to me that very day and who held me responsible for providing her with answers, which is what leads to the conclusion of the very book. Yeah, and actually it's wonderful the way that the conclusion like literally is an answer to her questions. Um, and, and the book, is, as you say, is, is a response. You, you mentioned uh, this question about what role culture plays, and I guess that's at the heart of the, the title of the book um, and also something you... Uh, work on I think throughout the text which is this idea of a, the culture trap and, and I wonder if you could sort of contextualize that introduce it before we we get into the um, the sort of specifics of US and UK education sure um, so I define the culture trap as an alluring yet insidious way of understanding inequalities that frames racialized minorities experiences and outcomes based on the perceived characteristics of their ethnic culture Right. And so uh, what put more plainly is that the over-reliance on culture as the secret to student success or failure in schools, I argue it isn't simply tricky. It's a trap. It's one that often pits racially minoritized groups against one another, all the while leaving the status quo and the dominant structures of white domination in place. Um, the, perhaps the clearest example of what necessitates an analysis of the culture trap are two dominant frames um, in both the U.S. and U.K. contexts. One is the model minority myth that's long been used to frame British Asians or select groups of British Asians and select groups of Asian Americans as being high achieving and given to success owing to their cultural values. Um, and what that narrative often does is that it is, if I can draw on the work of Diane Ray, it's, it's used as an ideological whip, as a way of keeping particular groups in line um, so that they can and they can be successful. The rehearsing and reiteration of this narrative um, plays a significant role in reproducing the very outcomes that we're praising them for. So the culture, um, sorry, the model minority myth has long been used to sort of celebrate and elevate um, select groups of Asians. The culture of poverty thesis, on the other hand, has long been used to frame African-American families in the United States context and Black Caribbean families in the UK context as being um, uh, not given to education, um, as not being successful, not working hard, right? Um, and and this is uh, the culture of poverty thesis, interesting enough, travels from the US um, uh, based on the work first of Oscar Lewis and then taken up by sociologists and political conservatives in the late 1960s. Um, and that to frame African-American families, particularly female-headed households um, in African-American families in, in, in deficit terms. And surprisingly that, or unsurprisingly, that very narrative comes to the UK context in the early 1970s, introduced by politicians to frame select groups of, of, of to frame select groups of Black parents, and in particular Black Caribbean parents in the very same way that African-American parents were being framed. What I'm arguing is that we, while we have a tremendous amount of research that focuses on the experiences of Asian Americans and British Asians, and we have a fair amount analyzing the culture of poverty thesis and its and the residue of it for Black Caribbean parents and families in the UK context and African American parents and families in the US context. What we what we don't yet have is a, a clear theorization and understanding of how these two frames are related how the framing of Asian Americans and British Asians as being a modern minority myth, where the modern minority myth necessitates um, a failing or underachieving minority in its frame, right? That the two, frankly, the two logics, the culture of poverty thesis and the modern minority myth, are, are part of um, uh, a, sick, a cycle of reproducing and representing culture, right? What I'm arguing is, that is what the, the culture trap is, and that the, cult, the model minority myth and the culture, of po the culture of poverty thesis are simply explications or representations, examples um, of the culture trap. We need, I argue, politically, uh, a broader conceptualization of what's happening, of how culture is used to yoke diff groups in different ways, how they're positioned differently in the trap, but how they're still encased in it. We need a broader frame if, in fact, we're going to recognize um, difference, a different positioning within the trap, but also if, we, in fact, we're going to organize politically to address it, right? That it, it requires sort of coalition building across the lines of, 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 of race, class, and gender. 
right? Um, that this isn't just about what's happening to British Asians and Asian Americans. It isn't siloed from the experiences of African Americans um, and um, Black Caribbeans in the UK context. That their positioning in the trap is contingent on the presence of the other. And I argue that the culture trap is the broader theorization, the broader conceptualization of politically what's at stake for both groups or for all sets of groups, frankly. I mean, that that theorization is grounded on uh, a really detailed and and quite long term uh, bit of ethnography. And it'd be good to hear both about the methods, but also, I guess, to to use the the ethnographic work you were doing to introduce the places. So uh, you did work in the US and in the UK in these two schools. Uh, You spent a lot of time there. You're kind of immersed um, I guess as a almost you know a sort of a member of the schools as, as much as a um, sociologist do, doing research, and I was fascinated by the way you connected the ethnography to that broader um, sort of theoretical insight that the book has. So, what's the story of the uh, of the two schools of the two sites for the ethnography? Yeah, so thank you again for that question, Dave. I um long before I even conceived of this study, um, I was a member or um, I was a member of these communities, right? I lived and worked in these environments where I ended up doing this research. And that I think, though I didn't realize it at first, afforded me tremendous access both to schools and to families um, in those contexts, because they also knew other members of the community that I was associated with. Um, And I think that mattered for the kind and quality of ethnographic work I was able to do. In the London context specifically, I was working as a community organizer in South London um, for quite some time, um, for a year before Miss Bell mentioned it, but um, for a couple of years before I actually began field work. I chose two schools, two of the largest schools in London and New York City, to hold the cases even. I was also looking for large schools, one, but schools that had the highest concentration of Black Caribbean students in their respective um, city or borough context. Um, as a result of that, I found myself in these two schools that were, were quite comparable. Not only that, in their history, these are schools with, um, they weren't new schools, right? These are schools with a celebrated, a long and storied history um, in their respective contexts that played powerful roles beyond simply um uh, played powerful roles in the community beyond simply um, or solely educating these young people. They were hubs for the community um, at different points in the school's history. So for those reasons, it felt like a fair comparison. What I was able to do, though, Dave, is um, uh, provide a complement to what um, policy analysts try to provide. So we tend to, in the context of education, focus trem- a tremendous amount on numbers, right, on statistics, on um, uh measures of students' outcomes and achievement. And and that is meaningful on one end. But what ethnography affords us is an opportunity for a close, in-depth, fine-grained analysis of the day-to-day experiences within school. So put plainly, I went back to school in in, in my late 20s, right, and sat in classrooms (laughs) and listened to young people and dressed like them on some days and didn't dress like them on other days. I was not an authority figure in the context of the schools. And that I came to learn um, um, allowed me to build tremendous trust um, inside those schools. I listened to the teachers and and, and listened to them as they vented, the, 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 the weight of stress that was being that they were shouldering, not just to try and get all their ch- students to achieve, but as they sort of dealt with these new policy mandates being, you know, um, brought down from the district as to what they needed to do in their classrooms. You know, I, I, I rode the buses with them. In some cases, I was, you know, I they dropped me to the train station. So I was in, in their car. I, I was outside with them as they smoked, letting out smoke and letting off steam as they vented what was going on in their classrooms. And so I built tremendous trust with teachers too. Not just that, um, I had originally conceived of this project, Dave, as only a focusing on what was going on in the school. But anybody who's done work with young people know that, you know, and if you've done ethnographic work, you need consent. So at every interview I conducted, and I did a, um, 184 um, interviews, in-depth and focus group interviews, along with 16 months of ethnographic observation, I needed parental consent. And so... Um, you know, if you send home consent forms with young people, they're not going to bring it back, even if you're taking them to Thor Park, right? You're, you're, you're going to have a hard time with them bringing it back immediately. And so um, some of the parents called me. I gave them my cell phone, gave this young people my cell phone number, and the parents called me, and Black Caribbean mothers in particular peppered me with questions about the kinds of questions I intended to ask their children. And when I shared the questions with them, these mothers um, would often say things like, oh, they can't tell you that. You need to come talk to me. 
So <laughs> what that allowed me to do was I took them up on the offer, right? I, I went and met with them inside their homes, in some cases while they were cooking or while they were tending to their children or, you know, while they, you know, um, had just come from work, but, you know, prepared a cup of tea for the meeting. That gave me an insider view into the cultural worlds of young people, which was not just about what was happening in school, but the circuit from home to school. Right. Um, and that afforded me this sort of full sense of, of, of the cultural worlds of young people um, and allowed me to sort of write the culture trap. That is what ethnography does at its best. It, it gives us a, a, a full snapshot, a good sense of, of, of the everyday life of ordinary people. And so I focus on that specifically in relation to Black Caribbean young people, the teachers um, who engage with them in school, the, par- the parents who love and care for them outside of schools. And their peers, their non-Caribbean peers, African, African-American, um, Latino, um, white working class, who support them um, at home and in schools. Yeah, and, and, and the kind of the richness of the writing that comes from ethnography is, is a really important mm-hmm. element of the book to, to being able to let those, those stories shine. You, know, you sort of flagged. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that, Dave, because it's one of the reasons, one of the things I struggled with the most um, when writing this book. You know, it would have been much more straightforward and, frankly, a little bit easier if I just had to write it as a, as a traditional academic text. Yeah. But I needed to take my cue for how to tell the story um, based on the people who told me the story. Put differently, I had to tell the story in the way the story was told to me. And that meant that I had to take Black parents and Black teachers and Black young people seriously, not simply as participants in a study, but as interlocutors. They were theoreticians in their own right. They they could tell me how best to tell a story that would be compelling for not just readers, but even for the kind of story politicians weren't paying attention to. Right. And so I had in many ways to revise how like, I think a tremendous amount about aesthetics, form and style. It's the reason every chapter opens up with a story. Right. It's to, it, it, it isn't just a, a, a way of being a, a savvy writer. But frankly, it's, it's, it's what allows folks who may not have a, a degree in sociology or history or anthropology to be able to understand the dynamics because they do. Right. They're just not going to phrase it in the sort of dry, dispassionate terms, you know, um, with lots of clunky language that we tend to, we, we tend to be used to um, in sociology and other fields. Do you see what I mean? And, and I think that comes through most uh, sort of powerfully and, and I guess kind of in, in, in the most compelling way in the second half of the book. So um, you mentioned um, sort of three or four sets of, of key actors um, in the study, parents, teachers, uh, friends, and, and social networks. But the second half of the book, I think, is where is where the kids, the, the, the students, really shine. Um, and it's ordered, I guess, around three ways of thinking about their experiences of education, um, how they kind of make themselves distinctive, how in some contexts they're deferential, and in other settings um, they are able to challenge, critique, and defy um, various, well, quite racist stereotypes, uh, particularly in, in the UK context. And I wonder if we can take those three um, frames in, in turn, really, um, to, to get a sense of, of those stories from, from the students. So the first thing is uh, distinctiveness. And I was really struck, actually, um, by, by, I guess, four things that are going on about the struggle to be distinctive. One is... Um, this idea of there being individual and collective distinctiveness, but the other, um, which was, and obviously in the two schools, but the other is the way that being distinctive is something that can be positive and it's something that can be negative. Mm-hmm. And there were these same sets of similarities uh, and differences. So, I mean, that, that's a big, long question. I've, I've sort of set you there, but I'm fascinated by how distinctiveness plays out in the context of the two different schools. Yeah, once again, thank you so much for your attention to that, Dave. Um, as you noted, as I, and as I point out in the book, the three dominant cultural logics um, at work um, uh, for Black Caribbean young people in pursuit of educational success in and out of schools. The first, as you noticed, distinctiveness. The second is deference. And the third is defiance. Um, but in order to set up um, these cultural logics, I frame the book in, 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 in a way that allows us not to stereotype Black Caribbean young people as doing something good or bad, but to really give us a good sense of the historical factors that shape their meaning-making 
in the context of schools. So in the first half of the book, put plainly, I describe the context of the cultural trap. I give you um, a sense of history and politics shaping what young people then come to experience. And in the second part of the book, I focus on how young people experience the cultural trap. Now to distinctiveness. Um, I, I noted that, and I learned that in the context of, um, of London, um, or let me do the New York case first, in the context of New York, where there were often, when they, where Black Caribbeans benefited from a positive ethnic reputation, they practiced what I call collective distinctiveness. Even when there were only one or two high achieving students um, in the context of their schools, the, the success of those few was served as a representation of the many. Um, we are collectively distinctive. We all are good. The reason those few are successful is because of Caribbean culture and the essence of it, right? Um, they're living it out um, uh, to the fullest, um, as one student argued um, and shared with me. So that's how we saw collective distinctiveness at work. In the, in the London context, on the other hand, where Black Caribbeans were um, had long been framed um, as an underachieving group and experienced some measure of ethnic stigmatization, particularly in education, those young people practice what I call individual distinctiveness. It was gut-wrenching and heartbreaking to hear Black Caribbean students say things to teachers and to their peers, things like, I'm not like the rest of these Caribbean kids, right? I'm not, the quote came up over and over again, I'm not like these yadis, which was a term often used to frame sort of recent um, immigrants, um, recent Caribbean immigrants, working class and poor, who are deemed to be sort of outside of British cultural norms and frankly, outside of um, the political norms of the British establishment. Um, what I came to realize though, um, in relation to distinctiveness, that it wasn't just about it being good in one context and bad in another context. It wasn't just about the pursuit of success for these students and their willingness to do so at any cost. But the students in New York that the Black Caribbean students were trying to distance themselves from were working class and poor African-Americans. And the students in London that the Black Caribbean students were trying to distance themselves from were working class and poor Black Caribbean people. What that comparison then revealed for me, which I would not have expected at the beginning, was that the framing of success necessitated a much uh, a, a, a beleaguered party a structurally um, disadvantaged group. And in both national contexts, this wasn't just about the stigmatization of African-Americans in, in New York City or the marginalization of Black Caribbeans in, in London. This was about, um, if you take it from a global and transnational perspective, this was about the relegation, the marginalization of working class and poor Black people. That, that, that is what's at work here. When we only think about this as a matter of culture, we ignore what I call the secret life of social class. In the earlier part of the book, I show that the framing of Black Caribbeans in New York as being high achieving was very much shaped by social class and tethered to U.S. immigration policies. To give you one example, in 1917, um, U.S. immigration policies necessitated that the Black Caribbeans coming from the English-speaking Caribbean had to be highly proficient in English. That became a code, as it were, for recruiting the middle classes and the elites who then came to New York City and their success was represented wholly as a matter of Caribbean culture when what was facilitating both the representation and reproduction of Caribbean success was their middle-classness and their eliteness. It was social class facilitating their success, but it wasn't being represented as such. It was being projected as simply being a matter of culture. That is what I'm calling the secret life of social class. Then we can think that this is just or simply a matter of culture, but what's beneath that culture veils, it conceals more complex dynamics of, 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 of class, of gender, and of race that we would readily dismiss. Um, and it's because of culture's malleability, its flexibility, why it can often be used as an alibi for racism, an alibi for, um, for other forms of inequality that become difficult to name and to challenge, right? And that's once again why I think coalition building across lines of difference, across lines of, of race, across, across lines of ethnicity, social class, and gender matter for identifying the culture trap um, and dismantling it altogether. I mean, it's almost a deliberately kind of crude misreading that I'm going to offer here now. But if if the distinctiveness cha chapter is um, foregrounding social class, the deference chapter foregrounds gender. Not that they can be sort of reduced, mm -hmm. as you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they they run throughout the book. Uh, actually, even when you're thinking about parents and and teachers too. So, so where does kind of gender come in, and how does it 
um, if not explain, but how does it interact with this idea of deference? Yeah, thank you for that, uh, Dave. Deference, the um, second cultural logic um, that Black Caribbean young people use in pursuit of success is what I argue or came to argue is a gendered formulation. And I should tell you, Dave, that, you know, I was just this brilliant sociologist who saw it from the beginning. And that, you know, they just played into my hand. And it that couldn't be farther from the truth, particularly in relation to the gender chapter. This is the one, this is the finding that was plain to see, but that I had the hardest time seeing. And this is why I have to position myself in the work as a Black Caribbean man, a Black Caribbean man, once a Black Caribbean boy, I had benefited it tremendously from some of the gender privileges that these Black Caribbean girls came to critique as being present in the lives of Black Caribbean boys. I, I didn't I didn't see it the way they saw it. Uh, but what ethnography and what interviewing in particular forces you to do is to see the world as young people see it. Um, and that's what led me to frame this. So I have to give due credit once again to Black young people as savvy political actors um, and, and ones who are, 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 who are capable, yes, and also quick at discerning structural and cultural inequalities in schools. Deference is this idea that one's behavior, one's comportment, how you speak, how you sit, um, uh, has an impact in shaping your success in schools. And what I came to learn was that um, you would expect me to say that um, it was always different in London and New York. In that chapter, um, chapter five, I point out that what the Black Caribbean boys in London experience is very similar to what the Black Caribbean boys experience in the on the other side of the Atlantic. What the Black Caribbean girls in New York experience, very similar to what their counterparts in, 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 in London experienced, right? The Black Caribbean boys um, in particular benefited from what I called complementary deference or deference for the sake of receiving praise. Teachers would praise Black Caribbean boys for what the girls described as, and I quote, basic behavior. Things like coming to class on time, sitting still, raising their hands to ask a question as opposed to blurting one out, right? Um, making an attempt at a question or to answer a question, even if they got it wrong. The teachers would praise them tremendously for that. That's what I argue is complementary deference. Black Caribbean girls were not praised for their efforts. They were not praised for good behavior. They were only praised through high academic achievement. Why, you might ask, were they not praised for their behavior? Because of this logic of what I call compulsory deference, or um, uh, uh, they're supposed to be deferential. They're girls. There's this logic that's tethered to the idea of girlhood and womanhood where good behavior and comportment are expected from girls across lines of um, race and social class, um, albeit with some nuance. That, for me, is not just about what I found in London and New York City. That's a global story. You would be hard-pressed, Dave, to find any woman <laughs> in any department who wouldn't at some particular point. Um, it's been the fascinating part of presenting this, to hear teachers and mothers say, oh, that happens to me at work, or I've seen this, this person has, this man got promoted, or this man was celebrated for this when, you know, I was doing the same thing, right? This, this is to orient us to a global set of ge a gendered regime of power, right? That's what I illuminate. And I can focus on the local, which was the intent, what was happening inside these classrooms, but in particular, um, spotlight how this happens around the world. How and why does it happen around the world? This isn't just because um, boys just got up one day and decided to do this, but owing to the educational legacies of empire, owing to the weight of colonialism, which again, I bring up in the first part of the book, um, owing to, for instance, put plainly, the strategic efforts of the colonial administration to, um, to educate boys and not girls, right? To subject girls across, um, uh, across the British Empire to a set of, you know, a particular kind of work to sort of encourage a particular kind of comportment from them. Whereas boys, particularly middle class and elite boys, were allowed to sort of focus on, you know, um, administration and particular kinds of schooling in STEM and um, efforts basically to sort of support the colonial administration. It is from that context that we get this gendered regime of power, which is the residue that we encounter in the contemporary moment. This idea that boys can do certain things and girls can't. But what is flipped on the head in the contemporary moment is that we see data across the world that suggests that girls are high achieving, um, at least based on test scores. And yet, you know, I get this all the time, despite sort of high achievement on test scores, they're, they're, that's not, they're not praised for their behavior. It is usually, again, through high achievement that girls garner success. And even when they garner success in, this, in their schools, we don't see this necessarily translated into labor market outcomes. 
right? We don't see it translating in the composition of parliament or the composition of the U.S. Senate or in the nature of our Fortune 500 companies, despite the fact that for the last 30 or so years, we've seen significant increases in girls being high achieving. But I digress. The main part of the story um, that I want to come to here is that um, I want to go back to the, the opening of my answer was that, you know, I didn't see this um, plainly. Right. What the girls were describing as basic behavior as behavior that I had modeled and benefited from in the context of schools. And these girls were very um, uh, sharp in their critique of me for not being able to see it. I would probe and ask them questions more. I would say, are you sure? Like, c- can you give me more examples? And I was greeted quite warmly by eye rolls. You know, on occasion, they would turn their backs to me and, you know, they would let me know that this is uh, some of them that this is foolishness. And it took me a while to recognize this larger point, that those who are, um, that those most proximate to inequality are the ones who best understand its impact, its reach, and significance. That even amongst Black Caribbeans, the the, the power and benefit of male privilege on some some ends created this sort of, um, limited my capacity to see these inequalities. Now, I know somebody is listening and saying, what do you mean by male privilege when Black Caribbean boys, in particular in London, have been underachieving and they're the group that... um, people are most concerned about. That was Miss Bell's question to me at the end. But but here's the, the, the real challenge with that point. It isn't to say that they aren't underachieving. It's to say, um, or that, they, that some of them aren't, and that there's a historical narrative here. But what was m- mobilizing or motoring this sort of um, praise of what the girls described as basic behavior in London and New York was that there was a policy context in London and New York City that framed Black boys largely um, as being an underachieving party, and that teachers felt then that they had to, to compensate for this, praise them for simple things. That is what we're seeing as, frankly, low expectations for Black boys in an attempt to have high academic expectations for them. It's this grand contradiction where in an attempt to support them, you're praising them for simple things and frankly not holding them to the very highest possible expectations. And that is what the girls were critiquing. It's not simply the inequality in who receives praise. It's that they recognize that the boys were experiencing low expectations for their behavior and that the girls wouldn't be praised for that. So for me, um, that again speaks to the influence of structure, of the discursive, um, of, 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 of public politics and discourses in shaping what young people experience in the context of schools, right? Um, deference allowed, afforded the boys praise, only high achievement afforded Black Caribbean girls praise. And that's not because of just what they believed. It's because there was this historical context that shaped who went to school, where, when, and also the contemporary policy discourse that seeks so much to sort of identify Black boys, yes, as underachieving, but also challenges teachers to identify ways of supporting them. But the way of supporting them is not just through praise for basic behavior, as the girls argued. It is through much more robust transformation of our educational system and through more targeted measures, for instance, like recruiting um, more Black um, teachers to the profession, for instance, like um, introducing more um, uh, Black male teachers at the primary school level, right? So as to sort of limit the inequality we end up seeing at um, the secondary school level. Those are the structural and organizational changes that we need. But instead, we're focusing on praising boys for their behavior when that can't remedy inequality. Do you see what I mean, Dave? I do indeed, and, and it strikes me that the sophistication of the girls' analysis uh, and this, their sort of teasing of you uh, around your own starting point ties in um, to the, the sort of final substantive chapter of the book, which is around the practices of, of defiance and you know educational sociology, um, ethnographies, um, you know going back a very very long time to you know, some of the sort of initial, I guess, canonical texts in, in educational ethnography have talked about practices of, of defiance in the classroom, outside of the classroom. And and this was really important, I, I guess, with, with the girls, you, you've just given this example of a kind of uh, critiquing and in some ways kind of resisting of um, both low expectations and um, the concurrent idea of Uh, misapplied high expectations. But what were some of the other uh, practices of defiance that you found um, in the ethnography? Yeah, thank you for that, um, Dave. So I I, I found that um, defiance was um, 
a really critical way of both um, quietly and publicly resisting um, manifestations of um, racism and inequality in schools, that these young people would would be well aware of what's happening in some cases, and there are points where they couldn't take it anymore. And they would use their power, their relational power, to challenge um, power brokers in the context of schools. This took different shapes um, in, in London and New York City. In London, um, the clearest manifestation of defiance was the public expression from students that they would leave the school. And they attempted, many attempted, um, to leave the school. Um, but in the context of the, the students that I studied, only one ended up leaving the school. This um, high-achieving, middle-class, Black Caribbean girl who ended up leaving the state school to go to a private school and I ended up following up with her parents afterwards and they, they described it as her jumping out of one um from out of the frying pan into another hot pan frankly that this private school was no better prepared to support her um and that she just found herself um uh experiencing different kinds of disadvantage. She wanted to leave the school because she thought that uh, you know the, the teachers had such low expectations of Caribbean students but she found a similar narrative when she went to a private school all the same, which, again, speaks to the sedimented narrative across the UK context. So leaving the school or expressing or stating a desire to leave the school was the clearest example of that um, in the London context. Um, in the New York City context, you know, there are a couple of different examples. Um, the students practice uh, what I call a quiet form of protest, where teachers would rely on these Black Caribbean students to lead conversations. And I observed in the classroom on a number of occasions where the quote-unquote high-achieving Black Caribbean students, or even the highly participatory Black Caribbean students, even if they weren't high-achieving, would not participate. And I would say, what's going on? And they would say, oh, this teacher can't say this about my culture and then expect me to just keep showing up. I'm not going to. And I would say, well, do, do you think the teacher recognizes what you're doing? And they'd say, well, whether they do or they don't, I'm not going to participate. Right. So I saw that uh, um, reluctance to actively participate in class as a quiet form of protest. But there was a much more public expression where these students um, in the New York City context decided to confront um, the teacher and teachers who um, were, and I quote, using our culture against us. And in the last chapter of the book, um, you, you'll see that the, 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 the class clown, this young student um, that I introduced at the beginning, becomes the teacher's chief critic at the very end. He goes to the assistant principal, the, um, what in the UK context you'd call the deputy head teacher, and he, he basically challenges this teacher in the hallway, in front of, with his peers. They decided they weren't going to send him alone. They were going to organize and go together. Um, and... As a result of that, really, the, the, the teacher was reprimanded. He was encouraged to really rethink his practices in the context of the classroom. That would not have happened unless these students decided to defy what was going on. In, in summary, what we saw in the New York City context was what um, I call um, uh, interpersonal defiance. It wasn't the school that was the problem, right? It was this individual. These students, these boys in particular, wanted to challenge that particular teacher, right, or individual teachers that they thought were doing something wrong. The school writ large wasn't the problem. In London, on the other hand, um, these students practiced what I called um, institutional defiance. It wasn't the individuals that, was, that were deemed the problem. It was the entire school for them that was a problem, which is why some wanted to leave the school altogether. Once again, same cultural logic playing out in different ways, owing to the nature of both the national context and the organizational context these young people find themselves in. The larger point I want to make here, though, before yielding the floor back to you, is that you know oftentimes we tend to think of young people as not necessarily political actors, right? That, you know, they're just going along to get along. And what I realized in the context of the school is that Black, both schools, frankly, is that Black Caribbean young people and young people generally are savvy political actors, whether they have the right to vote or not. That in their local context, they will, you know, at various points, rise up, speak out, lash out, or quietly protest what is going on in the context of their schools, right? What I wanted to show was how Black youth, those both quirky and quiet, bold and boisterous, um, uh, noisy and shy, choose to engage in what's fair and what's right in the context of their schools. And they may not all speak out against it, but they will act and express it in different ways if 
if we'd only take time to do what Stuart Hall had admonished us to do, which was to listen actively to ordinary people. Young people find them reported over and over again. They don't think their parents are listening to them. The teachers are listening to them. They, even their friends are listening to them. And the demographer then has an opportunity to sit still and to hear what young people have to say, to see the world as they see it, to experience what they experience to some degree. And it's all of that that led me to write The Culture Trap. You talk quite a lot through this, this discussion about the social, political um, mobilization um, ideas that flow uh, from the analysis of the cultural trap. And um, I guess one way I might have ended this is, is to kind of say, well, what does the book tell us about dismantling the cultural trap? And, but, but actually, I'd like to go back to where we started um, and the inspiration for the book. And the book, you know, you, you mentioned this at the start, but the book ends with this conversation with, with Miss Bell about almost a sort of, well, tell me the answer you know what what did you learn how have you explained this um apparently paradoxical um contextual um insight that the us and uk have really different um educational cultures seemingly for the same uh, group of of students so what what did you tell her and, and how i guess did you kind of um did you pass the test that she set for you yeah, I'm, you know, knowing Miss Bell, I I I um probably didn't pass the test initially, but eventually came to pass it. Um, there was one particular scene um at the end day where I shared a finding with her, and she gets up from the table with her hand raised. I really thought she was going to slap me. <laughs> I really thought, but she ended up giving me a high five, right? Because she was just so pressing in terms of an unrelenting in her questioning and really wanting to get at some solutions. I I understood why. Because for her, seeing young people in the context of the classroom for her over 30 odd years meant the stakes were high. This wasn't just some abstract conversation to be had. She was thinking about the young people we'd both worked with as a community as a community organizer um, with her as a teacher and what would happen to them later on. She started to give me reports about some of the high achieving black Caribbean boys that were in her class and how they moved on to secondary school and the stories she was hearing about them and how they were struggling in some cases, or in some cases too, how the girls were struggling. So I understood what she was trying to get at. The main points I lifted up was um, that oftentimes we're thinking about a set of band-aid knee-jerk responses when in fact deeper structural analysis and solutions are needed. Um, in particular, um, uh, one of the things about how New York City and London schools are, are, are structured differently really mattered for how the culture trap was mobilized in school. So, you know, mixed ability grouping or, or frankly, setting, um, which is so commonplace in the U UK context, right? It's almost an, a take it for granted element of schooling that we see um, most clearly in secondary schools um, is how we think we do schooling in the UK context. And tracking, which is what we'd call it in the US context, um, is how it plays out um, here. But that facilitates the representation of Caribbean students being high achieving and underachieving, right? Students get to see which set are you placed in. And what I saw in the London context was that Black Caribbean students were disproportionately placed in the bottom set, giving even Caribbean students and non-Caribbean students a sense visibly based on class allocation that these that black caribbean students were not uh, would not fear as well in education as other groups that isn't because of caribbeanness it's the it's the structure of schooling in part that's facilitating that that representation at the very least what I saw in New York City was a different formulation they had a new policy called AP for all advanced placement for all where the highest ranked class students could access it whether they had high grades or not this was being more students could take um, an advanced placement class in calculus or chemistry based on their intellectual interests and what that afforded in the new york city context was greater variation in the representation and ranking of students by race and ethnicity across classes because students were now being uh, motivated to take these classes based on um, their interests, right? The, what New York City had figured out, which I think is meaningful for, which is what I shared with Miss Bell, and it's meaningful for all of the UK, is that what happens when we conceive of education differently, that it isn't just about grades, but that we can think that there is a benefit for learning in an advanced class, even if you don't get a high grade. 
What might it teach students about the power of learning, the power of focusing and prioritizing one's intellectual life and interests when it isn't just about the grades you get on your GCSEs? What happens when we move away from a testocracy and value learning beyond the outcomes on a test? That's, again, some of the larger points and larger questions we have to ask ourselves, which is about the design, the fundamental design of our educational systems. What I found was that academic ability grouping was framed differently across the two national contexts and that, frankly, the policy research suggests that mixed ability grouping, to get, a ve- to, get to a very specific solution, mixed ability grouping ought to be prioritized in London schools. And the same needs to happen in New York City public schools as well. And I should add, though, at the end, that when I say public throughout, I mean state. Um, yeah. I refer to public in the U.S. context, right? So mixed ability grouping is a solution, right? And despite all the evidence that, you know, setting as traditionally practiced really disadvantages the disadvantage, we continue to prioritize it as a taken-for-granted way of teaching and learning in the U.K. context when we need to prioritize mixed ability grouping. So that was the first. The second, which is perhaps the 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 the, the, the sharpest critique of the, the British context, is that, you know, we have um, the... There are different critiques for the U.S. and U.K. context. In the U.K. context, on the whole, we have a year-long teacher training program, PGCE training, where um, teachers have to both be engaged in the classroom but take time to study and learn um, and and, and prioritize and appreciate the craft of teaching and learning. Um, But curiously, in this year-long training, you'd be hard-pressed to find more than um, a module or two focused on the significance of race and culture in classrooms. Despite the UK schools becoming increasingly diverse, particularly in metropolitan cities like Manchester, Leeds, and, and London. So we are not preparing our teachers effectively through this teacher training program to think meaningfully and in sophisticated and nuanced ways about race and culture. That has to be changed. Put plainly, teacher education in the UK context has to be utterly transformed to prioritize, not simply to deal with race and culture as like a formulation you can add and stir, but to think about how it matters for the meaning making that teachers mobilize in representing who's high achieving and who's underachieving. To understand the historical currents that frame particular groups in certain ways, that Black Caribbean students are not simply underachieving the contemporary moment, quote unquote, because they're not, you know, pushing themselves. But it's a sedimented narrative that you must understand the historical antecedents um, that shape the contemporary moment, that, you know, Black Caribbean students were framed as, and I quote, educationally subnormal by the British state for decades. And most teachers may not be privy to this, um, particularly if they haven't seen Steve, Steve McQueen's small acts, which brought light to this in, you know, more recent times. In the U.S. context, while we don't have a year-long training program, there's greater sensitivity, yes, to issues of, of, um, of, of race and culture, particularly in places like New York. But the teachers also are not actively, on an ongoing basis, in professional development, continuing to think about how race and, and a culture shapes the meaning-making they, they have of who, who's high-achieving or not. So in both contexts, more needs to be done around the support teachers need to both learn about the new, more diverse population populations in their midst, and to unlearn these deficit, sedimented narratives about why certain groups underachieve. Um, My final, final point, Dave, is that what I came to learn at the very end, beyond what happens for teachers um, through teacher training programs, beyond what happens with, you know, setting and tracking, um, is that, you know, deference, distinctiveness, deference, and defiance are not simply cultural logics that Black Caribbean young people use in pursuit of success. It was an aha moment for me when I realized, frankly, that um, uh, teachers and parents and school leaders often practice distinctiveness too. They'll say things like, you know, I'm not like the rest of those teachers. You know, I really believe in Caribbean students or, you know, I'm not like the rest of these parents, you know, like I make sure my children come to school on time, et cetera, et cetera. Or they'll go on to say, I've heard teachers confess that You know, I I make sure I'm polite to all the staff in my school. I make sure I'm kind or I I go greet the Caribbean, you know, teacher down the the hallway. Um, And that's also a matter of of, of your believing that your behavior, right, is is going to change or influence success. The last defiance, I have led a number of professional development sessions and sat in on policy discussions with teachers and school leaders where I've watched teachers and white teachers in particular sit in silence in protest in silence um, during trainings on diversity, equity, and inclusion, for instance. 
right? That too is an expression of defiance, right? And so what I saw from the young people was once again a case for how these ideologies are mobilized and reproduced even among the adults in their lives. What therefore, what that therefore necessitates is a deeper understanding of the culture trap for all social actors involved in the context of education, but also this deep desire for us all to taste stock, to inter, to introspectively um, uh, engage with what the culture trap means and what roles we play in that trap. Unless we're able to analyze what happens historically, structurally, institutionally, and interpersonally, we will reify as opposed to um, dismantle the culture trap. Where next then, after this book? Uh-huh. There is no... There are no sort of quick routes to ethnography, um, you know, and given the weight of of the transformation that's needed, as you've just outlined in education, it strikes me that, you know, there's immediately another uh, project around the application of the insights. There's probably another book in in terms of tracking um, potential progress and and impact Mm -hmm. or as you know, many people do uh, after completing such a big project, are you moving on to something else? Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks for that, Dave. It's it's precisely the questions I'm um, wrestling with in the contemporary moment. But I've moved on to a new cross-national comparison um, of the Black youth. So this time, not only Black Caribbean young people, but considering the experiences of African-Americans, Black Africans, and Black Caribbean young people. The central question for me um, you know, in the first book, I paid attention to what I call ethnic expectations, right, as a manifestation of the culture trap, this idea that you can use ethnicity or ethnic culture as a code for failure or success in a particular national context or in a particular school. In this new project, I'm paying attention to what happens when ethnic expectations fail. What happens when their ethnic culture has no significance in shaping their outcomes? And what I came to learn, much to my surprise, during the first project was that while ethnic expectations mattered in schools, in the presence of teachers, it mattered far less in the, on the streets and in the presence of the police. That is my next project. What happens when, um, uh, on, when young people are traveling to and from schools, um, wishing to be safe um, in pursuit of educational success? What happens when their ethnic culture doesn't matter, when the weight of anti-Blackness is so significant that it's all that the bus driver, the um, shopkeeper, the police officer sees or prioritizes. So this next project has me spending time again in the context of schools, looking specifically at what teachers and school leaders do to keep young people safe. But it also has me spending time on the streets, analyzing the circuits of schooling and the, the route to and from school. In particular, um, drawing um, the route to and from school in particular, informed by the work of a number of sociologists, um, uh, to better understand what happens when ethnic expectations fail. Put broadly, when does culture work and when does it not work? When do we choose to prioritize it and when we don't we prioritize it? That's the question that I hope to answer in the next book project, informed by the work of Stuart Hall, Pierre Bourdieu, and a number of others. <laughs> <laughs>